director of the Alamo Area Council of Governments, and we're here today at beautiful JBSA Randolph, part of the 2017 Great American Defense Community, Joint Base San Antonio and the Alamo Area Region. And I'm Brigadier General Caroline Miller. I have the honor of serving as the commander of the 502nd Air Base Wing and Joint Base San Antonio. On behalf of the largest installation of the Department of Defense and behalf of Military City USA, welcome. Thank you for tuning in. This is ADC Live. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us for our second episode of ADC Live. I'm Karen Holt, board member of ADC, and I'm joined by Executive Director Matt Boren in their studio here, also joining us from our West Coast studio, ADC CEO Tim Ford. Tim, how's the weather in Seattle? Anything like this? Hey, good afternoon. <laughs> well, you know, it's a very Seattle day, so we have cherry blossoms coming out, and it just snowed a foot in the mountains. So, you know, it's springtime in the Pacific Northwest. Well, it sure looked a heck of a lot better out in San Antonio. Uh, it has been, it's crazy to think. It's been a year since we were out there last together for the Installation Innovation Forum. Thankfully, hopefully, one of these days, we're going to be back. In fact, we got a plan, right? We do. We have a great show today, including a live interview with Patrick O'Brien coming up. But before we start, Tim, rumor has it that there is now an ADC Live app. Can you tell us more? Absolutely. You know, we have, as we launched this program um, a couple weeks ago, we were trying to figure out the best way to interact with all of you and to give you an opportunity to ask us questions and to be part of the conversation. So we've created an app and it's called ADC Now. You may have it on your phone if you've been to our conferences before, but it's been rebooted for this purpose. And it'll give you an opportunity to ask us questions, look at special content from each episode and, and really try to be part of what we're doing here every other week. So I would encourage you to search the app stores for ADC Now, download it. The, the one little catch is all the big features are special benefits to our ADC members. So if you're not a member and you're interested in getting those benefits, we have a way for you to do that and we'll, we'll share that information after today's episode. I'm gonna head out and get ready to do the news here in a few minutes. It's great to be here and looking forward to a great show. All right, thanks Tim, we'll see you here in a couple of minutes. Well, it doesn't feel right to start any conversation without first talking about COVID-19. And now, thankfully, the vaccine rollout. Karen, I hear you just got your vaccine about a week ago. How are you, how are you feeling? I did. Um, it went well, no side effects, and it was very well organized. Uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you got it, but there is a lot of vaccine hesitancy uh, out there. We read it all the time. Mm -hmm. I think I just read an article the other day that in the military, it's almost up to 50% of service members are thinking about opting out. Uh, and I know that's uh, that's a problem everywhere. Are you seeing that at all around uh, APG? It's an issue we're tracking in Harford County and APG. Um, you know, I think with a large DOD civilian population, we're really focused, um, or greater concern, is that the, de the defense community itself is taking advantage um, of that vaccine. Certainly has an impact on military readiness, and we don't want to see that impact to mission. You're right. You know, if, uh, if your neighbor isn't vaccinated, if the teachers aren't vaccinated, if the emergency responders aren't vaccinated, it's tough for that base to get back to readiness. And we know we're not the only ones concerned about that. Last week, there was a hearing in the Senate, and one of the senators actually grilled DOD on this. How are you coordinating efforts with the communities outside of bases? Following up on that, Senate uh, Peters uh, from Michigan, who is the co-chair of our Defense Communities Caucus, along with his fellow co-chair, Senator Jerry Moran, wrote a letter uh, to Max Rose, the special assistant to the Secretary of Defense for all things COVID-19, urging them to work with ADC, to work with defense communities, coordinate those outreach and education efforts. So this is something we're gonna be tracking um, as the, 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 the weeks roll on. Hopefully we'll have an update for you here in a couple of weeks. But let's, let's head to Tim back in the, the West Coast studio to get the news roundup. 
It's Wednesday, March 24th, and here are the headlines powered by On Base. The looming defense budget battle heated up a bit last week, with Democrats and Republicans wrangling over the future size of DOD's budget. A group of Democrats representing the House's progressive wing sent a letter last week to President Biden urging him to reevaluate the defense budget to invest more in diplomacy, humanitarian aid, public health, sustainability, and research. They are proposing a 10% cut to DOD's top-line number and state this could be done without reducing support, pay, benefits provided to our men and women in uniform and their families. This proposal was met with stiff opposition by House and Senate Republicans who pointed to emerging threats from China and warned when our edge erodes, we invite trouble. Representative Mike Rogers, the top Republican on the House Armed Services Committee, also called out the progressive push saying, my biggest concern right now is where President Biden decides to come down on defense spending. He continued by saying, this is a real threat to the Pentagon's budget and makes, it working, makes working on the NDA that much harder. The president's budget is expected in May and he is not anticipated to propose major reductions to the top line number. Another heated battle continues about who will serve as headquarters for U.S. Space Command. Former Secretary of the Air Force Barbara Barrett announced Redstone Arsenal as a preferred location in January of this year. That didn't end the battle, and Colorado is pushing back, claiming political interference and concerns about the Air Force's decision methodology. Last month, the Department of Defense's Office of Inspector General announced they will review the decision, and now the GAO has confirmed that they will also study the Air Force's methodology and scoring. Meanwhile, the Redstone selection moves forward with an environmental impact analysis underway that ultimately could lead to 1,500 new jobs heading to Huntsville. Looking for a quick resolution of this? Not likely. The final decision regarding the move is not expected until 2023. Shipbuilding was also in the minds of congressional delegations from the shipbuilding states of Maine and Mississippi, who sent a letter to Secretary Austin and Deputy Secretary Hicks last week. Despite Congress's previous plans for a 355-ship Navy that they passed in 2017, the group is concerned that DOD is not keeping pace with China when it comes to shipbuilding. Due to the long lead times necessary to properly procure and resource a larger fleet, they're urging attention must be paid to this critical issue now. It's unclear how the Secretary's updated national defense strategy will modify the shipbuilding strategies, if at all, but Maine and Mississippi are expected to keep the pressure on as, and with their congressional allies to make sure this important expansion of the Navy continues. Stay tuned, this debate is likely to keep moving. Last week, the U.S. Army announced the release of its Arctic strategy, Regaining Arctic Dominance. This new plan lays out how the Army will train, organize, and partner to secure national interests and maintain regional stability. The release of the strategy is timely, especially given the increasing levels of great power competitor activities in the Arctic. At the same time, climate change is changing the landscape of the region. While the Arctic may seem like a remote topic for the rest of the country, the implications of this strategy may be felt across the force. To provide insight into this strategy and its implications, I had a chance to sit down with Sherry Goodman, a former Deputy Undersecretary of Defense, who is now a senior fellow with the Polar Institute at the Wilson Center and a senior strategist at the Center for Climate and Security. In releasing the strategy, Army Chief of Staff General James McConnell said that the strategy's goal is for the service to be able to rapidly generate and project multi-domain forces globally that are specifically trained, equipped, and sustained to fight, win, and survive in extreme cold weather and rugged mountainous conditions over extended period. Can you help us translate this? What does this mean? And what do you expect to actually happen? Well, thank you. Thank you, Tim. In the Army's new Arctic strategy, they are recognizing that our land forces, our America's Army needs to be able to operate in the changing Arctic, uh, where temperatures are rising twice as fast as the rest of the planet, permafrost is thawing and collapsing, and sea ice is retreating. And to do that, our Army uh, needs to be able to train and equip its forces for the continuing cold weather and unpredictable conditions of the Arctic. And so he's recognizing that with more, more traffic on the waters, more people accessing the land, and the changing region, 
that our army has to be there to support, defense support to civil authorities. And because we have many, many military bases, um, important military bases stationed in the Arctic, um, both for long range missile defense threats uh, to protect Americans at home and uh, to be able to defend our, you know, defend the territorial integrity. And so he's looking at how do we, how do we take care of our soldiers and enable them to be their best and their families who are stationed now in very changing conditions at our major bases of Fort Richardson, Fort Wainwright and uh, Greeley. You know, it's not clear at this point whether this would mean new boots on the ground in, in probably Alaska. But my, I guess my my question would be: Do with budget constraints that the Army and DoD are going to be facing, you know, and which could have a downward pressure on the the total force? Any expansion to the Arctic might really be a zero sum game for the rest of the country. Meaning, we could be seeing shifts to to sort of fill out the needs of this strategy. Well, I, I think about it a little bit differently, Tim. I, I think we're going to be doing more exercising and training, be able to prepare to operate in the region. So we have, you know, we haven't looked at uniforms and cold weather equipping. A few years ago, the arm, the uh, National Guards began to look, uh, led by Alaska, Alaskan Guard, but including many state guards, looked at how do we need to train our guard forces to be able to uh, operate in the changing Arctic. So I think we're going to look at exercises and training equipment, training and equipping. That that comes well before we think about any, re, you know, restationing or additional. A movement of forces. We already have a lot of our forces uh, based in Alaska uh, for the missions that already pre-exist, the changing that are occurring in the condition, but they're occurring more rapidly in the Arctic than elsewhere. And so we need to be prepared for that. And that's why and the Army is taking good recognition of that. I think this will be definitely a region to watch in the future. Sherry, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Tim. Now our weekly look at what's happening in our communities. First, we head to Louisiana and Fort Polk, where a unique initiative sponsored by the Employment Readiness Program helps military spouse home-based businesses market their products and wares. The first Saturday of each month from 9 a.m. to noon, home-based businesses set up a market in the parking lot of the old commissary for easy access to the entire military community. In this challenging time of spousal employment, this is a simple and easy idea that could honestly happen anywhere. Back to Alabama, where Team Redstone's impressive growth in Huntsville continues. On Monday, state and federal officials were on hand for a ribbon cutting of a $700 million Redstone Arsenal Gateway building, which was developed through the Federal Enhanced Use Leasing Authority. Redstone Gateway will have a training and office space for the U.S. Army, missiles and space programs, but it will also have some space for FBI employees. It's part of a 468-acre mixed-use development that will house restaurants, a hotel, a coffee shop, an office space geared towards government contractors and research firms. The project's a joint venture between Corporate Office Property Trust and Jim Wilson Associates. Next, we head north to Connecticut, where the region around Subbase New London is the latest community to launch a local survey as part of ADC's One Military, One Community initiative. The survey, modeled after the one used for ADC's national study, seeks to better understand sentiments about racial equality across communities that serve is home to the sub-base. Connecticut joins Huntsville in launching local versions of the survey tool. Both regions plan local listening sessions later this year to share results and discuss opportunities for addressing these important issues locally. Two things on our watch list for this week. First, it's a busy time for hearings in DC. Well, sort of DC in this time of Zoom hearings. This Friday, Chairman Garamendi and Ranking Member Lamborn will chair a HASC subcommittee on readiness hearing on installation resilience and the lessons learned from the recent winter storm. Joining the hearings will be heads of installation commands for the Army, Navy, and Marine Corps, plus the Air Force's Material Command. On base, we'll be covering these important discussion. Remember earmarks? Well, they look like they're back. The fret over corruption and wasteful spending that made earmarks a no-no for the past decades is beginning to wane. Leaders from both parties took important steps this month to allow limited earmarks on spending legislation, opening the door for members to again direct 
money for projects in their district. It's a big deal for defense communities who have often led efforts with their congressional delegations to get MILCON spending earmarks for their installations. It may also have another interesting impact, breaking the gridlock on spending bills. It's amazing how spending bills become bipartisan when they include money for the district. After all the politics, let's get away for a moment of Zen in our picture of the day. When Army Recovery Program soldiers visit Moon Lake on Fort Riley, Kansas, they might be fishing or kayaking, but they also could be meditating. Moon Lake is a small, deep lake that boasts calm waters and is encircled by trees. Every Tuesday, soldiers assigned to the Fort Riley Soldier Recovery Unit participate in a guided meditation on its shores. Recreation therapist Ben Hatch incorporated an app called Mindfulness Coach into the weekly guided meditations. The app was created by the Department of Veterans Affairs, National Center for PTSD, and the meditations are brief and have been very helpful in supporting the recovery of soldiers. Maybe we should offer meditations to our leaders in D.C. Well, that's the look at the headlines for today. Back to the studio in D.C. Thanks, Tim. I think I'm going to suggest to the ADC CEO and maybe our board of directors that we adopt something similar to that Army uh, meditation program. Uh, but thank you so much. Karen, I'm curious, we covered a lot there, but what was most relevant there to you? What are you thinking about? I think certainly installation resiliency um, is, is key in, in our community. And um, you know, I think that's a particular issue to be very proactive about. And certainly earmarks um, picked our interest. It's amazing what uh, more money for people can do. Uh, hopefully it greases the wheels a little bit in Congress to help get this, uh, some of this stuff through. Let's go ahead and dive into our first featured story of the day. And to help with our journalism chops, I'm happy to bring in a seasoned defense reporter to help us dive into the outlook for defense industry. Brian Bender is a senior national correspondent for Politico and author of Morning Defense Newsletter, of which I am an avid reader. Brian, welcome to the show. Good to see you all, good to be back. How are things going, my friend? You know, we're hanging in there. Got shot number one, so waiting on shot number two and starting to feel liberated. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Well, when I get my shot number two, we can grab a beer one of these days. It's been too long. So, you know, I, I mentioned that I read uh, your, your morning newsletter every morning. And one of the th stories and themes I've really picked up on is the aerospace and defense industry, how they're talking about the new administration and Congress, how they're planning new investments. Uh, and so I thought, you know, you as, as really somebody who's watching this more closely than, than most, uh, you might have some insight. What, 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 are we, what are we seeing? What are the big trends out there? Well, I think it's clear that the Trump buildup, if you will, is over. You know, we went through the last three or four years in which we had an administration that advocated for more defense spending um, in a host of areas. And I think a combination of a new administration with different priorities, um, different areas where it wants to invest, not to mention a year of COVID and, you know, government expenditures at historic levels, I think there's it's sort of logical that the Pentagon budget is going to get squeezed. It looks like it won't grow. It doesn't look like it will get cut very much, but it'll be flat and um, it may not even account for inflation. So what does that mean? That means that um, the Pentagon budget people and the Office of Management and Budget at the White House got to figure out, well, what do we cut or what do we delay? And how do we find money in the budget for things that we want to prioritize like climate change? They, they see a big role for the Pentagon in climate change and helping to drive that forward. So it's going to be interesting to see what this budget will look like when it comes out. I think we'll get an early version, a sort of pared down version of President Biden's first budget proposal here in a couple of days. And then the full proposal, I think, early May. Well, to help us even uh, really get a better picture of what defense industry is looking at, we have a special guest, somebody I, I think you know pretty well, right? Yes, Eric Fanning. Um, Eric is currently the CEO of the Aerospace Industries Association, but he he knows where all the bodies are buried. He was uh, Secretary of the Army, Secretary of the Air Force, and now obviously is, is immersed in uh, advocating for and trying to navigate this new world on behalf of a lot of Pentagon contractors and, and many contractors in the communities uh, where your members are. Welcome, Eric. I appreciate you joining us. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, I'm going to play the reporter here and, and ask you, Eric, you know, you've been in government at the highest levels in the Pentagon, and you've had to make some of these tough decisions about 
where do we put our taxpayer dollars? Um, I think we'd all be interested in your read on on how this might play out. Where do you see, uh, you know, what's got to give and where do you see there being maybe some new opportunities? Well, I do think um, certainly everybody is watching to see what's going to happen with the budget, what the administration is going to propose, what's going to happen on the Hill. Brian, I agree with you. I think most people do. We, we expect the budget to be um, relatively flat. There's a, there's a lot of bipartisan support for defense spending and making sure we have a strong national security. A flat budget, of course, means that uh, purchase power erodes over time. But the real interesting thing to me will be where that money goes, as opposed to uh, exactly how much the top line is. And there's not a whole lot you can do in in your first budget when you're a new administration. Uh, there's not a lot of time before you got to uh, drop it on the hill. So you'll be we'll be looking for hints, I think, little seeds of where they're where they're starting to invest in the second and third year. Um, it's going to get more interesting because as those investments grow, as they put more money into into some new things that they're trying to, some new capabilities they're trying to build, uh, they're going to have to find bill payers for that. And so some things are going to have to go. And so that's kind of what I think everybody is, is watching right now. And I think everybody on both sides of the aisle is really thinking about this through the lens of China. What do we need to do for, for a high-end fight against China? Uh, and perhaps even more importantly, what do we need to do to deter China so we never get to a high-end fight with China? You know, um, if we have a couple of minutes, I think one issue that I think will affect uh, a lot of defense communities out there, military bases and, and the surrounding communities, is this focus on climate change and energy efficiency. We've heard it many times that this administration wants to use the Pentagon to help drive this larger policy. I'm curious what you see as, as some of the things that might affect some of those local communities. What kind of policies, what kind of um, investments? Well, it, it is interesting. Everybody wants to use the Pentagon for everything because of the size of its budget, of course. Um, but this is a, a problem that everyone recognizes. The, pro the Pentagon has recognized for a long time. It, it impacts a number of, of things. It impacts how you think about conflict, where that conflict will be, what will cause the conflict. Uh, it certainly impacts installations, um, particularly those that are being impacted most by climate change, naval bases, facilities in the Arctic. Uh, you just had Sherry Goodman on. But in terms of investment, we're all trying to figure that out right now. What will this administration do um, in its efforts to flight, fight climate change? And as, as you mentioned, um, one strong possibility is because of the size of the department and its ability to scale is investing in new types of energy sources, sustainable energy. You know, if the department says we're going to go all electric for our fleets on installations, uh, that has a big impact. That's a big buy. And so uh, we look to see the department investing in how it does things differently, but probably in new technologies as well, um, both to bring down its costs, its fuel consumption, which is an enormous part of the department's budget, um, but also what these new capabilities might be as they look uh, into the future and war fighting in the future. Well, sir, kind of shifting this down to even uh, more at the, the local level, you know, our members really look at their defense sector holistically and through the lens of economic development. So besides the defense budget, which worries everybody, uh, what can communities do to really support increased defense industry spending, increased investment? What are, what are really the challenges uh, that are facing some of your aerospace partners? Well, we, we actually are finishing a study with McKinsey right now on what the industry can do. Um, we don't always just ask the government, point to the government and tell it what we think it should do. We know we've got to look internally and do things too. And there are three main elements to that, to that study, all of which I think the local communities can be a part of. First is we know we have to do a better job and more work about talking about what the industry does, the technology that the industry is involved with, the problems, the current and future problems that the industry is focused on, and how the technology that comes out of these programs and these investments can then enter in other ways into society, like GPS, for example, did. Uh, so that's one thing that can help to make sure that we are attracting um, the right workforce, uh, attracting a good workforce. Second, of course, is reskilling, upskilling, lots of training uh, as 
the Department of Defense shifts in what it wants to acquire and thinks about those future technologies. We have a great trained workforce, but we need to make sure it stays current and ready for what those new technologies are we'll be working on. And then the third is we know industry writ large knows, we certainly know in aerospace and defense, we've got to keep focusing on diversity, equity, inclusion to make sure that we are appealing to the broadest population of Americans possible, not leaving everyone off the table as, as we compete for talent. And then I would finally just say all the work that I've seen over the years that, that your, your groups do um, in support of the local communities in conjunction with the base, with industry is really helpful in making sure that they stay sort of geographical centers. Industry wants to stay where the customer is. And so all that you do to support those installations makes a big difference. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Brian, did you, did you have one last question? I know we're, we're running out of time here, but I think we've got time for one more if you wanted to follow up. Maybe one question would be, uh, since you represent a lot of the large Pentagon contractors, what are you hearing from them in terms of what their biggest either concern is or, or what's on their minds is the biggest question mark about what's coming well, down the pike? We're, Workforce is always a strategic concern for, for industry, for the CEOs in particular. The budget, of course, what's going to happen with the budget. And then third, uh, which, which you've all talked about on the show already, is COVID, getting past COVID uh, and making sure that the industrial base, the supply chain stays whole and the workforce stays whole. So there's, there's, there's a lot of work remaining uh, to help make sure, because those two things really, in some ways, are the same, the industrial base and workforce that we remain whole because we're still working, the adversary, adversary is still investing, uh, that we remain whole through COVID. So when we get past this, we can still meet the needs of the warfighter. Maybe just a quick follow-up on that. You played a pretty significant role in advocating for Congress to extend its so-called 3610 authority. In other words, the government uh, can reimburse companies that have to pay their employees who are not going to work because the facilities where they work are government facilities or others that have been shut down by the pandemic. That was extended through September, and the Pentagon has doled out some funding for that, but, but that program's not funded. In other words, there's no appropriations. So is, is there uh, anything in your, your world that you're trying to do to make sure that that turns into real money and that contractors don't get left. Well, we are. There, there, there are a lot of costs, obviously, to doing business during COVID. Certainly a part of that is if you're trying to keep your workforce intact, and, and this is a highly skilled, trained workforce that could go someplace else if, if they were furloughed or let go. And we want to make sure, as I said, that it's whole at the end of COVID. And so we're doing a lot on the Hill in the administration. So we have these authorities to be reimbursed for things that we can't do uh, because of COVID, the facilities are shut, as, as you mentioned, and are working with Congress to try and figure out if, they, if we can find a way to have this funded so the Pentagon doesn't have to find, pay these bills out of other accounts, which, which more than likely means modernization accounts. Well, thank you, sir. And Brian, uh, I really appreciate both of your time today. I hope we can get you involved with ADC. Uh, in the future, and uh, I really, uh, I really appreciate your insights. Glad to be here. Thanks, Eric. All right, gentlemen. Good to be here. Now, for our next segment, I want to go ahead and toss it back to Karen real quick, and she'll tell us what's going on. Many of our viewers will recount our previous report on the big freeze, the damaging cold weather in Texas last month, and how it affected operations at Fort Hood. During that interview, the garrison commander discussed how utility privatization was critical to Fort Hood, not having catastrophic damage. That com comment generated some interest among our viewers and got us thinking about utility privatization, a program that has been around a long time but is not often front and center. To get a refresher on the program and how it's critical to installation resilience, Tim Ford sat down with Susan Miller, Director of Operations with American State Utility Services. ASIS is a big player in utility privatization world and operate numerous water systems on bases across the country. ASIS is also a sponsor of ADC. Here is Tim's report. Let's start with a primer on utilities privatization. Re remind us what the program does and, and how it works. Sure, Tim. So utility privatization is a 50-year program where proven utility companies own, operate, maintain, and systematically recapitalize the utility system infrastructure over the life of the contract. These utilities can include water, wastewater, electric, and natural gas systems. These agreements 
support the installation through a collaborative process to ensure their concerns and priorities are addressed while allowing them to focus on their mission. System owners are seasoned professionals in the industry with a wealth of experience in utility systems. Our company, ASUS, for example, has been in the water business for more than 90 years. There isn't much we haven't seen and nothing we can't handle when it comes to utility system planning, operation, and construction. So a ASUS is not the, the utilities privatization system owner at Fort Hood or involved in, in, in utilities at that base, but can you help us understand how utilities privatization might have helped save that base during the weather event like they experienced last month? You are correct, Tim. Although we serve at a number of bases around the country, we do not have the responsibility for Fort Hood. That base belongs to another very capable UP provider, American Water. However, during the same time, ASUS experienced similar challenges at Fort Riley during this extreme cold weather event. During events such as this, through established partnerships with our DPW and CES, housing partners, other utility partners, and the community, community surrounding the installation, it is truly a team effort to provide the highest level of service to our installation customers. Our mission under these conditions is to ensure that our utilities continue to operate and to mitigate any system interruptions. UP system owners have significant experience in these events, and we've actually been handling them for many years. As an example, hurricanes is a huge challenge for the Southeast. We've established protocols, we operate an emergency response center, and coordinate resources during events such as this. I know you spent 25 years in, in the federal service and, and work closely on utility systems on bases. Help us understand what a water system might look like prior to utilities privatization and what risks does that create? Sure, so in my experience prior to UP, system reliability was a huge challenge. The number of service interruptions or outages prior to UP were significantly greater than they are today. Uh, so there were compliance issues, consent decrees, uh, failure to meet permit requirements. Water is an extremely important commodity in fact, it's the only commodity that people ingest. UP is a proven holistic approach to looking at the problem areas and systematically addressing each and every one of them. Personally, uh, I was impressed by what UP was able to accomplish in such a short period of time on efforts that I had spent years working on as a civilian employee. Each UP contract provides a long-term view of the utility system through a 50-year master plan, which is broken down into five-year planning windows. And these plans are updated annually. Uh, these annual plans are supported through state-of-the-art hydraulic modeling and GIS systems to pinpoint the most critical assets for replacement and then put them in queue, if you will, for a replacement in priority order. With respect to the aspect of your risk question, UP actually shoulders all of the burden for regulatory compliance, so the installation doesn't have to. Additionally, as the owner of the system, all recapitalization work completed by the UP system owner is essentially warranted for the life of the contract. So in my view, as a former government employee, this provides a high level of confidence and peace of mind that really didn't exist prior to UP. I think utility privatizations will be back on the agenda around DOD as the new administration begins to advance a focus on installation resilience. Susan, thanks for helping us catch up on the program and the great work at ASUS. It's now my pleasure to welcome a good friend to ADC and defense communities across the country, the director of the Office of Local Defense Community Collaboration, formerly OEA, Mr. Patrick O'Brien. Welcome, Patrick. Thank you, Karen. Good to be here. Let's start with your title. Tell us about that name change in the legislative statute establishing the office, and have you gotten used to that new acronym? So I haven't used the old acronym since, uh, I don't know, about a month and a half ago. But uh, I have to say, uh, before I get started to address that, um, I can't have a better organization to direct. Uh, the organization over the course of time has demonstrated tremendous agility and flexibility 
And this year, uh, our name change is Defense uh, Office of Local Defense Community Cooperation. It actually came into law in January. It came into law at the same time that we ended up getting a defense appropriation bill signed in December. So we were already three months into the fiscal year. We didn't quite understand what our name was going to be. And we also had to stand up and start executing for the funds. So I just want to say uh, for your membership, uh, over the course of roughly four to five weeks, we were able to transition just by everything we needed to. So website, all the formal legal documents, et cetera, so for grants, et cetera, all that was changed. Uh, hats off not just to the staff, but also our CIO folks. Our CIO folks moved at lightning speed to get new domain names, get new linkages. We had to go through the hierarchy and DOD to get approval for all this stuff. And you know we barely blinked and we were operating as the Office of Local Defense Community Cooperation. Now, uh, I say we got an appropriation late in last year. Uh, that appropriation restored $20 million that was taken from last year's defense-wide review. And so we're executing roughly $124 million this fiscal year. And we're on plan to execute that full amount before the end of September. So our peak period now is between April and September. Uh, if you try to get a hold of us, we'll answer the phones, but I also have to tell you, we're not leaving anything behind and we're, we're, uh, we're basically gonna burn out whatever we've got in the tank to make it work. That's great. You betcha. So let's talk about some of the programs that, that are impacted within that budget. Sure. Um, certainly the Defense Community Infrastructure Program. Can you talk a little bit about what's new and what that timeline looks like for future applications? Yes. So uh, I would add anybody that has a question about the Defense Community Infrastructure Program, when it's coming out, et cetera, or another program I'll be talking about, the Community Manufacturing Support Program, uh, go to our website, uh, HT pps uh, colon two backslashes oldcc.gov and sign up to get updates. Uh, now the DCEP program, we ended up with $60 million. That money is gonna have to be competed over the course of this fiscal year. Last year, we could not go out for the competition until May and we had a very abbreviated period for that competition. This year, we do have a construct going out. Uh, Congress, after uh, last year's secretary decided to, uh, then Secretary Esper decided to prioritize quality of life spending, uh, this year uh, Congress enacted language that reprioritizes this. So we have military value up front, we have insulation resiliency, and then we have quality of family of life. Uh, if we stack those things together, what you're going to see probably published in mid-April or so is an announcement for public comment that will speak to military value is not really going to be arbitrarily defined, it's rather going to be predetermined using source documents that we'll identify for everybody to look at. We're also going to talk about um, insulation resiliency and family quality of life. Uh, insulation resiliency will have a step up over family quality of life, but it's also recognized you can have a project in one of those buckets that easily transfers across other buckets and gets into uh, military value. So if I'm going to tell your uh, listeners one thing important, uh, you'll want to know what the military value is, but it's not going to be the end all of your project. Your project really is going to stand on the merits of what it is. Is it resiliency? Is it family quality of life? It's going to look at what that installation commander is endorsing it as and how important it is to addressing that local mission. And then lastly, it's also going to speak to how quickly you can start turning dirt and getting the project built. This money has to be obligated by the end of this fiscal year, but importantly, it also has to be spent in five years in a lot of infrastructure projects, so roads, utility systems, et cetera. When you start talking about environmental permitting, uh, other types of permitting, et cetera, five years is not a lot of time, so we're really keen on looking for those projects that can turn dirt and get going right away. Very good. Patrick, manufacturing certainly is impactful to a lot of our military uh, communities. Um, can you talk a little bit about the Defense um, Manufacturing Community Support Program and what the status of the projects that were selected last year? Sure. So uh, last year we had 25 million and uh, the selection process was two-tiered. Consortia, and consortia being organizations consisting of public, private sector individuals to include universities, local government, et cetera, they came in and they competed. And based on their proposals, they were rank ordered. 
And once they were rank ordered, we invited uh, applications working ourselves down for the amount of money we had. So 25 million ended up going out across five different projects. So there were five uh, manufacturing consortia that were recognized. And then across those five projects, there is a specific niche that's designed to try to build and leverage uh, that consortia to bring innovation and value back to the department. So uh, you've got Connecticut being funded in some other areas and you know each of those areas has a specialization that is focused on a particular industry or a particular technology. This year there will be very little change. So uh, we're hoping to publish something in mid to late April get that published to where folks will have 60 days to submit a proposal. Uh, those that received funding last year uh, will not be eligible for funding this year, so we're looking to fund more consortia than what has been in the pot to date. And uh, we hope to have that competed and awarded again before the end of uh, September. Now, both this program and the community infrastructure program as we've developed it this year, uh, we're hoping to give proposers a uh, total of at least 60 days to get their applications or at least proposals together for our consideration. Last year, folks barely had 30 days. A lot of people felt shortchanged by that. And uh, it just did not work well for a lot of people. So this year, we're hoping with uh, the approval process now underway inside the building that we can get both of those programs up and out. And uh, if we can get them out for public comment by uh, mid to late April, we're in pretty good shape. Now those are exciting opportunities for communities. How about the Military Installation Sustainability Program? Um, any project updates there? Right, so uh, this program uh, blended both our compatible use program, uh, also the Joint Land Use Study Program, along with the newly enacted Installation Resiliency Authority. And um, so within that rubric, there's a continuum. And uh, your, your speakers, prior to my coming out here, uh, spoke very eloquently about just what the challenges are to resiliency. Mm -hmm. And we like to think of resiliency as existing on a continuum. So you have some uh, climate-related, naturally occurring challenges to resiliency. You might have some man-made, uh, you know, unfortunately human-driven actions that might disrupt these types of things. You also have, quite frankly, uh, Mr. Fanning talked about workforce development. And uh, how do you end up continuing to feed the local installation skilled labor so that the installation can continue to accomplish its mission? Uh, and if you don't have a, a valid uh, supply line to keep that workforce resilient, and therefore the, the installation resilient, you're gonna start suffering gaps in the mission. So uh, this year, we're looking to award roughly $19 million across 43 efforts. Later this spring, we're going to issue a new federal funding opportunity notice that will invite uh, applications or at least proposals across this continuum. So energy siting, um, you know, energy resilience, uh, utility resilience. Uh, we're talking about sometimes you have flooded roadways. What about doing something about those flooded roadways? One size doesn't fit all, and uh, we think it's very important for communities to be looking at this program as addressing this continuum of issues. So we want to offer the ability to address those. Now, uh, going forward, uh, we, we know there's a priority of this administration to be looking at climate-related items, Build Back Better, et cetera. Uh, some of these programs that I've discussed here today may fit neatly within that rubric. Uh, what, how far they go? and what the decisions are made as to what's done about those or how much money we might look at or any change of activity is still underway within the building. And uh, you know we're still looking for additional leadership to come on. I think uh, our deputy and our secretary probably are wishing they had a lot more, more colleagues to work with in the building, but right now uh, we're getting by, but it is taking some time. And uh, I think we will look at this installation sustainability program as being a key respondent to these type of natural and man-made issues that affect sure. an insulation. I know we're running out of time, but I do want to touch on the new noise mitigation program, um, a little bit about what it is and how communities can apply. Right, so uh, appropriation bill for uh, FY21 uh, provides both authorization and funding, $50 million to be spent over two years. So this is not one year money. Uh, we can obligate this money through uh, September of 2022. 
but it basically is asking us to go out, identify facilities that have fixed wing aircraft on them, identify of those facilities which have 65 decibel level contours or noisier contours, and there are some that go up to 85. Mm -hmm. And then once we identify that mix, consult with local officials in the military to determine what can be done about that noise, how do you attenuate that noise, okay. and then come up with a program for that $50 million. And uh, we've started to scratch the surface on this, and I'll just say preliminarily, uh, we believe there's between roughly approximately 200 to 300 installations with fixed-wing aircraft to start with. And so if each of those installations has a noise contour of at least 65 decibels, and there's structures within those, those contours, right. uh, we're going to have to figure out how do you most effectively spend $50 million. Now, there's also this thought this money would help the FAA Part 150 program. And because the funding doesn't come attached to anybody in particular, we're going to have to compete this program as well. So once we figure out how best to approach this, and the demand's going to far exceed the amount of funds that are available. Sure. Uh, we're going to have to publish this for public comment, receive that public comment, and I would expect that we'll be conducting a competition for that funding. So we will have to provide for match for the FAA program of assistance, but we're also going to have to look at what else is out there. So joint strike fighter, uh, growler system, other legacy systems, um, you name it, fixed wing aircraft presents a dilemma for a lot of residents, businesses, and communities and we're looking to try to remedy that, at least scratch the surface with that program. Sure. Patrick, thank you so much for um, giving us your time today. You've given us a lot of um, food for thought, and I would encourage people to follow up and, and stay informed through the website. Um, there's a lot of resources. Uh, old CC, as we're calling it now, um, certainly is a resource for our defense community. Yeah, you know, if, if I may, uh, just a parting note. The language that created us also included some language about what we do. And it's about fostering cooperation between states, communities, municipalities, and the military installation. And, and uh, in doing that, you're reducing operating expenses, you're bringing efficiencies, you're basically multiplying the force with the local installation. And the department's leveraging the resources, but I have to tell you, uh, through the defense-wide review that we went through, and even today, there is a lot of folks inside what the bubble that I would call the Pentagon that just don't get how important communities and states are to the well-being of our military installations. Uh, ADC has gotten it. They've been on it uh, for many years. Uh, the local partnering program, uh, going out there and you know paying for a water plant when the installation can't get it through a Milcon program and said, look, you guys have been there, you've walked it, you're continuing to walk it, but I want to leave the message, you got to hammer on that message back to everybody in the building too, because we keep seeing turnover and new people don't have the same awareness, they don't have the same appreciation for what you all do. And that's a really important function that states and communities have. And uh, we, can, we can say what you do, we can try to represent what you do, but no one speaks louder than the folks that are actually doing it and then bringing to the table really the benefits that you brought to your installation. So, our appreciation for all the work ADC does, too. Well, thank you for your insight and your continued support and partnership. Some You're good synergies. Welcome. Keep up the good work. Thank you. It's time for one of our regular segments here on ADC Live, the State Update. We're joined again by Michael Bem from Stateside Associates. This week, he's focusing on education legislation in Alabama, where he sat down with Trent Edwards from the Montgomery County Chamber of Commerce. States around the country are competing for the title of a most military-friendly state. State leaders understand how important a military presence is to both national security and their own local economy. They've been enacting laws over the last two decades to protect the bases, improve the schools, create employment opportunities, and improve the lives of the families that live around the bases. They're also doing this to be competitive, and more competitive in this environment, to secure that new base or mission, land that new weapon system, grow the current mission and bring in the quality families and veterans to form the foundation of a solid community. You know, we're honored today to have as our guest, General Trent Edwards, Senior Vice President for Military and Community Development for the Montgomery Area Chamber of Commerce in Alabama, which is home to Maxwell Air Force Base, Fort Rucker and Redstone Arsenal. General Edwards also sits on the Alabama Military Stability Commission, which has been busy this year working to pass state legislation geared toward protecting the bases from encroachment 
and supporting military children and families to make Alabama more competitive. General, welcome to ADC Live. Thanks for being on today. Michael, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here and appreciate all the things that ADC is doing to uh, take care of our military members and families. General, tell us a little bit more about this legislative package, which is on its way to the governor. Eight bills uh, they passed this year, a big effort during any legislative session. How did you work with the legislature to do this? Absolutely. Thank you, Michael, for the question. I, I would start by telling you this was a team effort, right? We have someone on our uh, Montgomery Area Chamber of Commerce team that works uh, external affairs, Ms. Sharon Rose. And so it was understanding, one, the legislative process, and two, the opportunity to engage on some issues that are very important to our military members and families. So we spent a lot of time uh, helping the legislature understand the importance of those bills and what it could do to help support our military members and our military spouses, as well as some of our military missions. So it was a team effort. So, so, so tell us um, uh, at least a couple of the bills address K through 12 schools and improving the quality. And this is now a basing criteria. Military communities are gonna be judged on the quality of the schools. Tell us a little bit about that legislation if you can. You bet. Uh, there are a couple of things in that legislation that, um, that help address not only the mission, but also uh, to help advance uh, the quality of our public school education. Uh, one of the things we wanna do is look at uh, in-state tuition. Uh, so if you are a military member and you're assigned to the state of Alabama for a short period of time and your, your, your child enters the Alabama higher education system, um, if you depart, as long as your child remains enrolled in that uh, college or university, you can, they can continue to pay uh, tuition at the in-state tuition rate. So we're very excited about that. Troops to Teachers is another legislation that also helps uh, retiring or departing military members engage in the education system in terms of uh, certifications and credentialing. Now, to really get to your question, the K through 12 piece, what we did was we established a K through 12 working group with um, Air University and Maxwell Air Force Base. And we invited community partners and leaders across seven counties to participate in how we can improve uh, quality public education. And it's just making folks aware of some of those issues. Well, that's, you know, that's great. Did you borrow from any other states or any other uh, uh, experiences to, to bring up that issue with the legislature? I think what we did, uh, Michael, was we listened to our military members and, and families. And so we've got great private schools and we have magnet schools. And so we are continuing to enhance the quality of public school education. So from a readiness perspective, when we looked at those barriers uh, that caused military members and families to maybe not relocate here, we understood that uh, public education was one of those barriers. So it was an all out effort to address the quality of public education, which by the way, Michael, not only benefits our military members and families, right? Education is a, a, a community-wide issue. We all benefit from quality public education. And, and, and General, you're retired Air Force. Um, I, I think our uh, viewers would be interested in uh, the legislation that was passed intended to ensure that tall structure development doesn't interfere with the air bases. Um, I'm thinking about wind turbine development, which is big right now as, as, as renewable uh, energy development is growing. What are the challenges here? What are the challenges working with developers uh, to ensure they're not conflicting with the air mission? I think, Michael, it was just helping developers understand the impact of tall structures to flying missions, such as the one we have at Maxwell with the 908 airlift wing. And so the legislation simply allows that before any uh, tall structures are constructed within two miles of the military installation, the military installation commander, that installation commander uh, in that base had the opportunity to take a look at where that structure is being built and to comment if it will interfere with flying or other operations. Well, General, thank you. I think we've run out of time today, but this has been a great conversation. To ADC Live viewers, uh, to learn more about Alabama's efforts, uh, you can visit the ADC Live website. And stay tuned for our next episode of State Updates when we'll dive into the comprehensive work that's being done by the state of Utah to support their defense sector. Matt, back to you in the ADC Live studio. And thank you. Thanks, Michael. Uh, you know, one of the things that General Edwards and I had a chance to talk about, in addition to the great things he just 
uh, spoke with Michael about is one of their educational initiatives there on the ground in Montgomery. Recently adopted in Alabama and around the country is a new Purple Star Schools program. This supports military-connected children as they relocate to new schools due to a parent's change of duty station or other moves. The Military Child Education Coalition has been the chief advocate of this program. And really to learn more about it, we wanted to go ahead and check in with CEO Dr. Becky Porter for background on these efforts and really how all of you can take advantage of it as well. Let's go, let's go there live now. The Star Schools Initiative is something that's, uh, that that schools and states voluntarily get involved with uh, to communicate to military parents that they are receptive to military connected students coming into their school system and that they have a culture of acceptance at those schools. MSEC is the national advocate for the Purple Star School Initiative and we've worked um, in the last couple of years to help teach schools how to be involved with this and how they can adopt this as a, as a best practice. And what does a school or a, or a state or a school district need to do to become certified as a Purple Star School? It varies across the states, um, what they require or what the school district requires. But generally speaking, it includes things like having a peer sponsorship program where students welcome new students into their school. And ideally those that can include uh, both military and civilian students so that they get to know each other. Another thing that is frequently included in the Purple Star School um, requirements would be something like a, an on-campus liaison for military parents and military students. Uh, so this is someone who is different from a school liaison officer, but is there at the school to um, to welcome military-connected students and make sure that they get uh, oriented as seamlessly as possible. Another one of the uh, requirements that we see across uh, lots of the states includes professional development or in-service training for the, for the uh, school teachers and uh, counselors to, um, so that they know what it means to be a military-connected student. And then um, finally, we often see that there's a requirement for the school to have a, a website uh, or space on their website for military connected parents uh, to, to get oriented to the school. Now, we're almost out of time here, but we always want to end our episodes with some good news. And this is a segment we're calling our One Community, One Mission moment. This week brings us to Ohio, where the Ohio Air National Guard has teamed up with the Army to set up a mass vaccination site in Cleveland. Matt, I think this is a great story of the community coming together. Let's take a look at our report from the field. I'm a dual status commander, so I have the ability to command both Title 10 active duty and Title 32 guardsmen. We have 222 active duty uh, soldiers from the 101st Airborne. And then right now we have about 300 Title 32 Ohio National Guardsmen who are helping with the support functions uh, around the facility. Now this is a pretty big operation and usually when you have big operations like this, you'll have a long time to plan, but the, the planning session was fairly condensed for this operation. So yeah, the ramp up was really busy and uh, with any operation, no plan survives first contact. So flexibility and adaptability have really been key with this. And, and I tell you what, we've got some super smart soldiers around here who anytime they see some sort of way to improve something, they're, they're injecting their inputs and we're adapting. And I think every single day, this operation is getting better, more efficient. And I think the community has, is really appreciating the, the hard work that they're doing. We are up to 6,000 shots a day, and so that's our plan for uh, the remainder of the time here. Uh, it's an eight-week operation total. We did, we did do a ramp-up uh, at the very beginning because we didn't have a lot of time to plan. We needed to kind of test our processes first. So weeks, uh, week one, we started off first day at about 1,500 doses and then ramped up from there. Uh, until ultimately four days in, we've got 6,000 and we're just trending right there ever since. Something that we strived here with this model was uh, making that customer experience or community member experience as easy as possible. So we do, do things like we, ha we have about 120 wheelchairs to make sure that people can effectively and efficiently get through our model. 
Additionally, we have translation services here. We have uh, the top five languages that are spoken in Cleveland. Additionally, we have electronic units that can translate up to 270 different languages. So even if someone has a has uh, can speak English, if they have a preferred language, especially when you're talking about medical questions, it really helps them kind of ease their mind that they understand what's happening and what the expectations are with the vaccinations. You know, you count on partnerships to accomplish things like this. This partnership between FEMA and DOD, the Ohio Department of Health, the Ohio National Guard, incredible. It's seamless. When you walk in here, you see uniforms. You don't know if it's regular army, whether it's National Guard, whether it's nurses that have been brought in from various installations to make this work. These people have come together as a team. And I tell you, it's, it's pretty touching to see the commitment to getting shots in arms here in the community. That's a well, great guys, story coming out of Ohio. Yeah, that was that was a jam-packed hour. I mean, some really good information. I think that the some of the stuff that Patrick shared, I think, is really valuable. And I think there's going to be a lot of people working on grant applications for the next few months. Um, one thing before I toss it back to you, a big shout out to the ADC team. You know, we are a very small staff. And the fact that we pull off productions like this, kudos to our team who's running around behind the cameras and and making this all happen. And, and Matt and Karen, thank you guys for, for hosting a great show today. Thanks, Tim. Uh, you know, be sure to check in on our next episode on April 8th. We've got a lot of great content, a lot more news to cover. We've got a, a Congressman uh, Derek Kilmer coming on, who's on Hack uh, House Appropriations Defense Subcommittee. He's going to talk about his push for more DSIP funding and for other important uh, weapon systems that really help communities. And beyond that, we have some really good service installation leadership. So don't miss out. Matt, it was great to see you again. And thank you for your continued support of ADC. Please tune in on April 8th for our next episode until we can meet again face to face.